Hi again, I'm Jack Lessonberry, and welcome back to Politics and Prejudices, the podcast. This is sort of an evolution of the column I wrote, the radio commentaries I did for many years. I hope you enjoy and keep listening. You can also catch up with both my writing and essays and podcasts you might have missed on my website and blog, LessonberryInc.com. That's ink as an ink pen. So please settle in, listen, and stay tuned afterwards for my closing essay. Today, we're lucky enough to have Michigan Chief Justice Bridget McCormick with us. She's been on the court for a little more than seven years and is running for re-election this November. Prior to that, she began her career as a public defender in New York, taught law at Yale, and was a dean of the Michigan University of Michigan Law School, where she founded the Michigan Innocence Clinic. Justice McCormick, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You know, people have, or I think they have, a sort of general idea of what politicians do. I find there's only a very hazy understanding of what a state Supreme Court justice does. And uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, I mean, we all know that from time to time you wear black robes and you hand down decisions, mm-hmm. but that's not all there is to the job. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is interesting that we, we're, we're this co-equal branch of government that is often the last word on disputes between the other branches and also affects so many people's lives in our courtrooms throughout the state. And lots of folks have no idea who's on their state Supreme Court. Um, right. But, um, yeah, the decision-making function is one I think most people are familiar with, maybe because that's what the media writes about most of the time. They'll say the Supreme Court decided this case or that case, and um, that's something people follow. We have the final word in um, every kind of case in the state, and just as a reminder, 95% of civil cases and criminal cases are heard in state courts, not federal courts, so your state Supreme Court is uh, is a is a pretty important institution, but but um, like many other states, the Michigan Constitution also charges the Supreme Court with administrative oversight of all of the courts of the state, um, and that means the the kind of justice, the quality of justice that's delivered throughout the trial courts throughout the state, is our responsibility. Um, and as Chief Justice, are you the main person in charge of overseeing that? As the Chief Justice, I get no extra pay, but I have a lot of extra administrative duties. Yes, um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a, but, but you know, I have a very talented administrative staff that works for the Supreme Court Administrative Office, and um, they are working to support those trial courts throughout the state. We have 242 trial courts in Michigan. Uh, they hear almost 3 million cases a year. That's an awful lot of people directly affected by this branch That's of government. 30% of the population of Michigan's, uh, you know, in the court system one way or another in any given year. It, I, and maybe more than that, right? Because each side has, you know, there's usually more than one party in a case. True. And yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, uh, lots of your neighbors, probably many of your family members, interact with the court system one way or the other. And not usually because things are going great. Right. You know, usually it's something... Um, Nobody says, I'm having a wonderful day, I'll go sue someone. Right. right. So, <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, so when you talk, talk about administrative responsibilities, you can't create new courts, you can't dissolve courts. What kinds of things do you do? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. Um, and the, the administrative team is divided up in um, ways that I think make sense to support the courts of the state. We have a judicial education team, we have a judicial information services team. They're building all of the... Um, tech that our courts use that actually make courts um, more efficient, more effective. Uh, We have a talented trial court services team that are supporting um, our problem-solving courts and the kinds of programming we now offer in courts throughout the state that are that that's aimed at making communities healthier and safer. Um, We have a budget team obviously we need that team they're important especially lately. Um, But 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 we we support the work that happens in the trial courts um, at the individual level with training, support, um, 
uh, guidance. Um, and sometimes it takes uh, overarching kind of um, policy. So I have been, policy might be the wrong word, you don't think of judges making policy, but we affect the policies of the courts, you know, right. and so that when I use that word, that's all I mean. I don't, I don't, I don't mean well, to. Spe speaking of policies of the courts, obviously there's a pandemic going on. Have you been a leader in moving and just talking about whether courts can ha have sessions by Zoom, et cetera? Yeah, in fact, um, Michigan is 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 far and away the national leader in moving our court operations um, online. We we had an advantage. Um, in our administrative role, the Supreme Court had purchased Zoom licenses for all of the trial judges in the state. Um, long before there was a pandemic, not because we were prescient. We just thought it's a big state. We should start right. figuring out how to do things in a more convenient way to lawyers and litigants. So we had the Zoom licenses. We had the hardware. We had already purchased that a number of years ago. We did not uh, have a lot of judges using them, but they had right. the ability to use them. So we were able to pretty quickly stand up the kind of support and training and tools they needed to be able to start doing remote hearings. And now all over the state, your judges are doing hearings on the Zoom platform and live streaming them to YouTube. And you can watch them from your smartphone or your laptop, wherever you are. You can see what's happening in your courtrooms. Do you anticipate having entire trials via Zoom? It's that, so trials is going to be the hardest of all. Um, I, you, you should know that very, very few cases are tried, but right. uh, but those that are, it's, it's less it's, than ten percent of the cases, right? That, that it, it's it's less than five percent, and significantly less in in wow. civil cases um, and in misdemeanor cases, significantly less. Right. It's a very very small number, but it's an important feature of our of our American system, right? It's this place where right. um, you, as a citizen, have a direct check on your government's power, right? You right. get to say. Nope, no way, government. You can't do that. You know, so it's a, it's a, it's, it's a really important feature of our, of our democracy, um, but it's going to be the very hardest one to do on the Zoom platform. We have actually run a Zoom trial. It was a fake trial. We right. had a, a, a member of my staff played a criminal defendant. We had a real prosecutor, a real defense lawyer, and a real judge, and we recruited jurors from family members of staff and law students. And we picked a jury and we held the entire trial by Zoom. We did it so that we could put together best practices right. and, um, again, training and support for judges and lawyers and litigants who want to use that platform to get their cases tried. Because it, 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 it's going to take some creativity in the middle of this pandemic to get jury trials off, the, off and running. We've had two so far in Michigan, one in Traverse City in the high school auditorium and one in Emmett County, they had one big courtroom and they had the jurors seated throughout the courtroom instead of in the jury box. That'd be Petoskey, probably. I, it, it might have been, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But uh, does that mean there's a huge backlog uh, because cases have not been able to come to trial since March? Um, there is definitely a backlog of cases that need to be tried. Right. There, but, uh, but, but the rest of the cases have been able to move um, at, at, at pace on the Zoom platform. Um, judges are doing all kinds of hearings and um, hearing arguments on the Zoom platform and moving their dockets throughout the state. So is it legal, is it going to be permissible, maybe I should say, for someone, a judge to have a Zoom trial? Could an open circuit judge have a trial entirely by Zoom? Uh, a judge can have a trial entirely by Zoom as long as the lawyers and the litigants are okay with it. They I can't see. force a criminal defendant to have a trial by Zoom. Um, in fact, they can't do that because uh, the Michigan Supreme Court just held in a unanimous opinion a few weeks ago that I wrote that the Sixth Amendment right to confrontation, um, you can't guarantee it in a with, with video testimony. So, so if you want an in-person trial, you can hold out for one. You might have to wait. So that's going to be a hard call for, for, for mm -hmm. some lawyers and litigants. Civil trials, on the other hand, which don't have the security concerns right. and don't have the constitutional protections, 
those, those can happen. They can happen lots of places. You can do those safely with a little bit of creativity, which is. We're which talking is about mainly uh, civil trials involve suing people for money. That's right. That's exactly. Right. That's, that's, not that's being charged, not being charged with a crime. That's right. Criminal cases are where people have been accused of a crime and they have a right to a, a, a jury uh, to, to decide their guilt or innocence. And civic, civil cases are disputes between people usually about money. <laughs> you know, some people f think it's sort of bizarre. When there's a vacancy in federal court, the president nominates somebody at any, any level of federal court, usually with advice from a senator. The Senate confirms them or doesn't. And then they stay there for life. Whereas in Michigan, not only do you have to run for election, your people are put on the Supreme Court ballot generally. Almost everybody that is on there currently now was nominated by either the Republican or the Democratic Party, but we don't have partisan justice. Does this make sense to you? Yeah, so this is a topic about which you're going to have to have me on about for about 20 more hours because there's so much to say about it. It's a, <laughs> No, it's an interesting topic. It's sure. a topic about which, like, there's lots of interesting scholarship. Um, uh, you know, an independent judiciary is a really important feature of right. our constitutional democracy. And so my biggest complaint about our election system is the role um, um, partisanship ends up playing. Even though we right. appear on the nonpartisan section mm -hmm. of the ballot, we're nominated by parties and the parties therefore have an oversized role in the election process. And I think that undermines the courts, um, the public confidence that folks have right. in the court. So. I mean, I can say a whole lot more about that, but um, but I do think that the federal system where you have lifetime tenure um, and you are, you know, insulated from um, you, you're, you are you can feel completely confident making unpopular decisions. Just, judges have to make unpopular decisions. We have to right. disappoint uh, our friends um, or else we're not doing a very good job. It, introduce me to a judge who likes every decision she's ever made, and I promise you she's not a very good judge. In fact, uh, federal judge Avery Cohn, who we both know, said once to me that he was really happy he didn't have to run for election because he had the ability to make decisions that were often unpopular with the public. Yeah, I mean... You, I'm not you, suggesting that you make decisions based on will I get votes for this or no, any, any justice yeah, does. No, you have to... You, you really have to be willing to lose friends and lose elections to do the job right. That's exactly that's exactly the bottom line. People sometimes ask me, how do I know who's the best candidate for judge? And I almost always say, it's the person who has lots of other uh, professional options, the person who does not need the job, right? right, the, right. That's the person who's going to be able to do it with independence. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, you had a... You had a wonderful job at the University of Michigan beforehand. And, I did, uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, so that's a good point. But, you know, when politicians run for office, they can say, uh, I, I'm for more taxes, I'm for less taxes, I'm for whatever. Yeah. But no judicial candidate can say, elect me and I'll repeal Roe versus Wade. Nope. Or that I will vote a certain way. No. So, so how does how does somebody campaign it's a if you're running for, running for a, a judicial seat? It's a terrible campaign pitch, but you're, you're exactly right. In the political branches of government, um, you get to decide, like, do you like, you know, the, the, the current guy's policies? If you don't, you throw him out of office and you get, a, right. you get a new guy with new policies. And that's not the way the judiciary is supposed to work, right? We have to follow the law um, that's uh, enacted by the political branches of government um, and really ultimately by the people through their representatives in those branches, no matter what the answer is. So my campaign pitch is really hard. Like, I'm going to work really hard. I might rule against you. How's that for a campaign pitch? You know, I, it's right. terrible. It's not. It's not really, like how do you take that show on the road? I what I what I end up talking about a lot because I actually believe it matters a lot is the the important work which we started with that the courts do, the Supreme Court does, supporting the courts of the state. You know, courtrooms of the state are um, making really important decisions in people's lives every single day, 
and we have a choice in those courtrooms um, about whether we want them to be, you know, more like police stations or emergency rooms. Um, judges in Michigan are on the front lines of um, our addiction problem, of um, of of poverty, of of so many important social issues, and they have a tremendous role to play in supporting the, their local communities. Do you think the judicial system, the judges in general? Need to do more so that the public so that the public understands what they do, and also that they're human beings. I absolutely feel that way. I, I it's it's a funny it's it's a funny bind because judges feel like they have to be kind of removed from the public. Um, that you know to be independent right. to be. I, I understand this position very well, but I always argue to my judicial colleagues that the opposite is true. We should be engaged with our communities. And talking about the role of a judge, talking about the role of the court, why it's different from the other branches of government, I actually think that would help the public understand our decisions when they might not like them, right? You know, exactly. the more they understand what it is we're supposed to be doing, the more they will be able to understand, okay, well, that's why the court ended up deciding that case that way, you know. You're not a trial judge. We had this horrific case earlier this week where a federal trial judge, uh, somebody, somebody uh, apparently a disgruntled lawyer came to their house murdered her son. She wasn't there at the time. Do you have security? Do you worry about that? Yeah, the federal courts have decent security. That that story is absolutely horrible. It just literally makes me sick to my stomach whenever I think about it. Um, yeah, it was a disgruntled lawyer who had a, a case in her court. But um, And the federal court has has pretty good security. I have you know friends who are federal judges, and they, the, the federal government makes sure their homes are secure and funds their security. And um, we do not have that. I don't, I don't, right. I mean, no, we don't have that in Michigan. I drove here by myself. I left my home this morning by myself. My brother texted me yesterday, I think, reading about that case and said, what's your home security system like? Right. I said, not, don't think I have one. You know, maybe I shouldn't be well, saying that on the podcast. <laughs> well, we won't mention your address, but, but again, you're not making, you are one of a body. You're handing down decisions. That's right. Uh, like the U.S. Supreme Court, we make all decisions by committee. We have seven justices instead of nine, but every single decision we make is 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 by committee. Before you came to the court 10 or 15 years ago, um, the Michigan Supreme Court was widely seen as sort of an embarrassment in some ways. The justices didn't get along. This isn't me saying that. Somebody rated us 50 of the, of the 50th courts, of the 50 courts. People were normally assumed to be voting their partisan sympathies on cases. That's changed a lot especially since you became chief, chief Justice. And you see, for example, you were elected Chief Justice with some Republican support. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, we are all nonpartisan. Um, right. But but the court right now has three justices who were nominated by the Democratic Party, including me, and four who were nominated by the Republican Party. Um, and the court uh, uh, selected me to, to, to lead it um, now. And I think that's um, a... a a, a nice, nice thing about my colleagues. They want, they, they wanted to figure out who could, who could do the job right now. My kids had all graduated. I was, right. I had some extra time. So, so, so of course you weren't there. Is, is your impression that there's more collegiality? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, the, the court, I mean, I, I, I know all about uh, the, uh, the, the way the, I, I've heard about the way the court used to be, even from people who served on the court during right. that time. And, um, and it sounds like it would, it was a hard time. I don't, I don't, I'm really glad that's not the court right. I serve on. I don't think uh, I would have lasted this long. It's not my personality. I don't think I'd do well right. in it. Um, but it's been a collegial place since I've been there. And, and frankly, I, I um, credit lots of people for that. And, and, and they're not all people nominated by Democrats. I credit, credit, I credit my Republican colleagues just as much. You know, I, I mentioned that while you were nominated by the Democratic Party, you weren't a lot of Democratic 
bosses, shall we say, first choice. You had to kind of work and get gra grassroots support to get that nomination. Yeah. I know the party chairman at the time did not want you as a nominee. That was the that was true, but it worked out anyway, right? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Now, as you mentioned, you have other job options. You probably wouldn't be on unemployment if you didn't do this. Why do you want another eight-year term? Um, you know, the court is involved in some really important things right now. It, it, on the administrative side of the docket, I've been I've been uh, honored the last uh, year and a few months to co-chair with the lieutenant governor, the governor's task force on jail and pretrial incarceration. Our county jails in Michigan have uh, populations have tripled over the last three decades, even though crime is at a 50-year low. Why is that? Well, we now know, we didn't used to know because it didn't have any statewide data, but with the um, help of the Pew Charitable Trust and a bipartisan um, state and county task force, we gathered the data throughout the state. Um, the short answer is um, poverty. Um, the kinds of things that people are doing, relatively short stays in jail, but stays that are long enough to interfere with your employment, interfere with your um, taking care of your kids. You know, j jail, even a short stay is incredibly disruptive. Um, but there are lots of unpaid um, fines, fees, costs that result in driver's license right. suspensions. And then the next time you're driving, because you have to get to work, it's Michigan after all, we don't have any other way to get to work, you've now, you're now committing a misdemeanor for which you must go to jail. In Wayne County Jail, the, the highest, um, the offense for which most people were lo uh, logged into the jail is driving with a suspended license. That sounds terribly expensive and inefficient. Uh, Yep, and we could change it pretty easily, and uh, so we're working on it. We have, uh, at the end of the data gathering and hearing from the public and studying best practices around the country, we made 18 consensus recommendations that, um, if enacted, will make Michigan a national leader in jail and pretrial reform, and uh, the legislature is, is moving on the first package of those, and uh, I believe we'll be moving on the next package very, very soon. So I'm pretty excited. You're cautiously about that. optimistic? Or? I am cautiously optimistic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, you've seen our legal system from a number of vantage points, and obviously, you know, it's not perfect. That's one of the reasons you started the Michigan Innocence Clinic, after all. What other reforms do you think ought to be undertaken? I know you can't do it all yourself, but what do we need to do? Yeah. There, well, I'll tell you a couple others that we're working on. Um, uh, the, in, in the civil justice system, people with civil leagues in, legal needs in Michigan don't have a right to a lawyer if they can't afford one. And eight out of 10 people who have civil legal problems can't afford lawyers in Michigan. That's a really significant number of people who have to manage the court system on their own. What's a test to determine whether someone can't afford a lawyer or not? Um, that that's just by the federal indigency standards. So by the the the, the standards the federal government uses. Um, but it turns out that most middle-income people can't afford lawyers either. So right. a lot of people navigate courts with you know family disputes, um, eviction matters. These are important issues, right? That right. they have to navigate on their own. And the courts, frankly, are not set up for uh, people without legal training to 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 do to do well navigating right. them on their own. So so we have this. Justice for All Task Force, which has an ambitious goal of 100% access within three years, not by a lawyer for every single one of those people, but there are lots of other ways we can make right. sure that people who need to navigate courts can get the information they need to make sure that they can have their voices heard um, and their disputes resolved in a way that um, gives them confidence in the work the court's doing. And and that, that to me, is one of the 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 biggest projects we we are tackling right now if you can if somebody's listening to this or watching us what's well, a good place to start because i think for so many people the courts are these great forbidding marble pillars buildings and they don't know what to do 
Yeah. So you mean if somebody has an, a legal problem and they need to figure something they, out? Oh, yeah. yeah. If they say, where, is there a, a website? Is there yeah. some place you'd send them? So the Michigan Supreme Court website is 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 pretty good. I will tell you, our platform is um, is not the best, but we we have a lot of excellent information uh, on our website, and it links you to just about everything I've been talking about. The jail task force right. report is on there. Um, you can go on there and find the virtual courtroom directory where you can click on any county. See which judges are live streaming to YouTube. Click on the link and watch judges from your smartphone. And what's the address? Uh, that's a great question. But if you Google Michigan Supreme Court, it'll come up. That's I mean, a great idea. That's it's how it's in my saved tabs, so I don't, yeah, um, I should know that. Um, I would say if you have a legal problem, though, that you're looking, and, and this is also linked on the Michigan Supreme Court website, michiganlegalhelp.org is a fantastic self-help um, legal resource. It's the best one in the country. And um, helping thousands of people every day. Um, and it has tremendously user-friendly toolkits for um, if you need, if you have a legal problem that you, right. you need some help figuring out. You know, federal judges can serve for life. And it strikes me as being very ironic in that, I mean, Joe Biden is a lawyer, the Democratic apparent nominee. He may well be elected president. He would be ineligible to run for the Michigan Supreme Court because he's over 70. Does it make any sense in the modern era to say, as we do, that no one can run for a state judgeship after they turn 70? I mean, the answer is there are obviously people who are, um, you think of, think of some of the judges in the Eastern District of Michigan who are far over 70. Abram Cohn is 95, and he's, right. he's brilliant, right? I mean, right. And, his, and who, wants, who wants to lose his service? So I, don't, I personally think uh, there are tons of qualified people over the age of 70. I also happen to think that turnover is good for every organization, right. and there might be a better way to achieve sure. that. Um, I, you've probably read about people who propose... 18-year terms for Supreme Court justices, and and that's it. You know, you're in and you're in, and 18 years later, you're federal out. Supreme Court justice. Yeah, the, right. the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. There's a there right. a number of academics who right. who, who propose a um, an 18-year staggered term, so each president gets um, two appointments, I think, and something um, like that. Yeah, something like that. Um, and I could imagine that kind of system working well in the state court as well. I think that there there's something to be said for new people showing up um, at a conference table and bringing a new perspective and um, so challenging. Maybe, maybe term limits rather than an age limit. Maybe term limits rather than age limits, yeah. yeah. What else should people know about the courts or about you? What would you like people to oh, know? I don't know about me, but, um, but I think they should know that the courts um, are uh, right now doing more than ever before um, to solve problems. Um, we have um, problem-solving courts in uh, every part of the state, um, and these are courts where, where instead of cycling people charged with crimes through jails, which is an easy thing to do and doesn't take a lot of time, it doesn't take a lot of staff time, right. we're instead treating the underlying conditions that, that landed them in court. So we have mental health treatment courts, we have drug treatment courts, we have um, veterans treatment courts, um, we have sobriety courts, um, where we're seeing in, in, incredible success rates. They're, they're time-consuming, they're expensive, because um, they take a lot of... Uh, staff time. People people report for um, many many months, sometimes a couple of years, um, to make sure that their progress is sustained before they um, graduate. They they have formal graduations from these programs, and they're really saving lives and and strengthening communities. Um, courts really can be a place to solve problems, not just um, dole out consequences. Uh, and I, 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 and, and I want, I want folks to know that it's, it, you know, the courts belong to the public. Um, they owe the public a duty to um, be a force for good, and, 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 and we're trying to do that. And you like to spend some more time making that even more the case. 
I think so. Yeah, that's my idea. I want to do even more of that throughout the state. By the way, I should mention that you don't run, well, you, although you run for re-election, you don't run against, it's not like Smith running against Jones, correct? You've got a pool of people on the ballot. That's right. The top two, the top two vote-getters, no matter what their party is or if they're an independent, will get chosen in the, by the voters on November 3rd. That's exactly right. And it's the nonpartisan se- section of the ballot, so you might not even know what their party is. So you'll pick two names out of at least seven that I know right. of, um, and the top two vote-getters will win. And of course, it do, but it does designate if you are an incumbent, it says that you're a justice. Yeah, I'm going to have that big advantage. That's a, that's a big advantage. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck to you, Justice McCorm- Chief Justice McCormick. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think our justice system is fascinating. I hope you've inspired some of our viewers to want to learn more about it. Maybe a few of them to go to law school. I want to thank everyone for listening and watching today. I'd also like to thank those who've contributed to help keep these podcasts going. If you'd like to help too, I'd be thrilled if you could send a contribution to me via PayPal on my blog, lessonveryinc.com, or Message me on Facebook for more details. And again, please check out my blog. Click the button to subscribe. The price is right. It's absolutely free. Listen to more episodes. Tell your friends and feel free to send me a message. This is Jack Lessonberry with the Politics and Prejudices podcast. Hope to see you again soon. Thanks again to Chief Justice Bridget McCormick. Thank you. Great. If you look at the ways in which we pick state and federal judges, you're bound to conclude that at least one of the two methods makes no sense. In the federal system, justices are nominated by the President of the United States, confirmed by the U.S. Senate, and then they stay there as long as they want to be, essentially for life, as long as they exhibit good behavior, whatever that means. Oh, they can be impeached and removed by the Congress, but only eight have been in our entire history. Many federal judges stay on the bench into their 90s, and we have had several of them who were over 100. State Supreme Court justices, on the other hand, have to run for election and re-election every eight years and can't run after they turn 70 years of age. That means, although Joe Biden may well be elected President of the United States this year, he'd be ineligible to run for the Michigan Supreme Court because he's too old. On top of that, there's something else about the way Michigan picks high court justices that seems bizarre. They almost always get elected only after having been nominated by one of the two major political parties, Republican or Democrat. Does that mean that justice should be partisan? Of course not. And judicial candidates can't answer questions as to how they'd rule on a particular issue. But in practice, everyone knows that the Republican Party would never nominate a candidate who is pro-choice, just as Democrats would almost certainly never nominate one who is anti-abortion. There's a reasonable argument that voters should should have the right to select those who sit in judgment of them and the laws their legislatures make. That might make sense if we had a fully informed electorate. Too few busy voters know much about judicial candidates. For years, it was a given that if you wanted to get someone elected as a judge in the state, having the last name Kelly or O'Brien helped a lot. There's also a reason to worry lest voters retaliate against a judge who made a judicially sound but unpopular ruling. There's also the fact that most Michigan Supreme Court justices in recent years have first been appointed to fill vacancies. When they run for re-election, they're listed on the ballot as a justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, meaning their opponent is that brand X, commercials always tell us not to buy. What I'd like to see is a system where some reputable group, like the Michigan Bar Association, picks a pool of six of the best qualified candidates from which the governor could choose any time there's a vacancy. We might also use a system to select candidates for nonpartisan judicial races. Without a constitutional amendment, that would require politicians to voluntarily give up some power. Don't hold your breath for that. 
This is Jack Lessonberry. Thanks for watching and listening, and I'll see you again soon.